these are all major factors that have you know been hugely problematic to our to our election system and democracy and and even and this is several years after cambridge analytica was using that data so it doesn't yep. seem to me that facebook's actually done very much and back then even when they did confronted by the cambridge analytica claims they went to incredible lengths to cover up for themselves i mean they really yeah. did lie about what they knew yeah. and there's a court case uh, doing the rounds right now that proves that they were in fact very very negligent in confronting it and in telling uh, their users whose data was being used and whose data had been compromised and that still goes on till today i mean we're heading into another election season where facebook is essentially saying we're not really going to put up guardrails around any of this kind of conspiratorial content and also well, they smeared Chris Wiley in the same way that mm. they are smearing you know Francis Hogan i mean mm. this is just horrifying you know they removed his account and they you know they claimed he was the threat right. on the platform <laughs> sorry i'll let, I'll, let, I'll hand over to dave though yeah. no, i mean so yeah no i i i agree with you know everything you're saying there and i would um you know, just kind of add that a lot of people, I think, misinterpreted and misunderstood the Facebook or the Cambridge Analytica intervention as being about trying to win an election. Because up until that time, we were kind of accustomed to, you know, political activity online being about gaining a specific electoral advantage. You know, if you look at what the arc of this has actually been, uh, what they actually did was they kind of injected poison into the bloodstream of the American mm -hmm. people. And, um, you know, what that has resulted in is societal uh, breakdown and decay that, uh, you know, has really left us with kind of a depleted social fabric that has in turn become more vulnerable to attack of different kinds. So this was never about how do you get Donald Trump to win in 2016 necessarily, although that's a nice get if you can get it. The real issue now is five years on, what kind of country has it, have we been left with? You know, where what situation are we in now? And I think that the, you know, really important thing that Ms. Haugen uh, brought up was the idea that, you know, there has been this societal harm that has occurred. And I think we all now have a sense of what those harms are. Mm -hmm. This isn't just about political polarization. This is about people losing track of reality and going down into crazy rabbit holes and attacking the Capitol and all of these other things, which sort of kind of map on to political party activity, but they're also just, you know, p what appears to be, you know, the country kind of losing its mind and grip on reality. So mm -hmm. I think that continued manipulation and the idea that that's continuing even now, up to and including the appetite for young children, young girls, uh, you know, dealing with body image issues and eating disorders and all of that kind of thing, uh, you know, pretty clearly immoral. And I think that almost everybody can see that preying on people that, you know, are young and manipulable, particularly is highly unethical and also is going to lead to a very bad place for American society. And many years on, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now, we're going to be dealing with people that are still coping with the harms that they were, you know, had inflicted on them by Facebook in 2021. Absolutely. And that all of those, you know, really work to the benefit of, of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin in, in many ways. And it's not, you know, it's no secret to any of us that do the stuff that the Kremlin and the Internet Research Agency, which came out of St. Petersburg, uh, run by Prigozhin, the so-called Putin chef. I mean, that was, you know, on top of what Cambridge Analytica was doing was used to poison the political environment uh, in the most awful ways. And you see here an example of one of the first posts they put out for uh, supporting Trump 
um, you know, talking about foreign workers or immigrants. But, you know, the, the message is so clear about how racist it is and how, and bringing a kind of language into our politics, which has never really been tolerated or hadn't been tolerated for a long time. And yet we know today that the, the same IRA continues its work in many ways. And, you know, we haven't, even though they've, they certainly did stop some of it and some of it was removed, some of the accounts were removed in general, we still have very much the same situation still existing today as existed back then. Well, and a large part of that is actually, I mean, you say America hadn't had, maybe not to the same degree, but they were using and amplifying, you know, um, traditional kind of like, um, you know, propaganda from the United States and just making that far more extreme. And, you know, utilizing these platforms, which have tendency towards this kind of extremism. But, you know, the reason it resonated and, you know, had an effect is because it plays on those cultural themes that are present in American society. And it's, you know, the, that was how it's able to be so divisive. So I think, you know, the power has to recognize that American society, you know, has this element there already. And, you know, that has to be addressed in order to protect and to overcome these divisions that we're seeing between people and, you know, that are really destroying the United States right now. And, you know, we're coming up to another election. And I'm, I'm kind of worried about that one, I'll be honest, mm -hmm. because I don't think oh. any of this has gone away. And I don't think the wounds are healing. You know, we're pretending that they have gone. And that's not the case. In fact, it's the opposite. They've deepened. You know, we've now, you know, four years on, have poured even more into these wounds. And they, you know, we continue to find ways to polarize this country. And sometimes with fake news or whatever, they keep inciting the fear that you're talking about. This, you know, giving fear to neurotic is essentially the, what we've been doing now for years. We've made it a, even if it didn't exist before, which it probably did, but we've now made it a real thing. Well, they've made it a real thing. Uh, well, and I would suggest that these wounds are cumulative. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, we have this idea that like, okay, if they stop running the ads, everything is okay. Mm -hmm. You know, or if, if whatever the activity is, you know, slows, then it'll be all right. But the issue is, is that we have in actually internalized these wounds as a society. Our fabric has been t cut and torn in very important ways. So to everybody out there who has, you know, quote unquote, lost a family member to QAnon or has people that they can no longer talk to because politics have become too divisive or, you know, who has a, uh, you know, fa direct family member that has somehow or another been damaged by this stuff. Those problems are not going away just because, you know, we've tweaked the social platform a little bit. Yeah. These are these are actual wounds to our social corpus. So when yeah. we think about this stuff, it is actually affecting social capital and how we run our country and how we perceive ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that stuff is cumulative and it hasn't gone away. We're going to be living with those wounds in some cases for decades. Yeah, it could tear apart the country. I mean, it could literally tear about tear that's apart. That's why we have to stop the damage that's mm -hmm. happening from continuing to occur mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, Heidi, I know you want to jump in, but can I do this quickly? Can I do the... Uh, yes. Let's, I mean, yes. let's talk a little bit about Mulner, the Yuri Mulner, who was a investor in Facebook, an early investor. He, you know, Zuckerberg went on this trip to Russia, got a deal with uh, Yuri Mulner to fund a portion of the company, 
and without any board seat. Uh, that was the big sort of takeaway from everyone was really interested in well, how he was able to get all this money without, you know, having to give up at least a board seat. That's the kind of thing that normally happens with a big investor. Yuri Milman turns out to be a connected to Usmanov, who is a oligarch of, you know, negative repute, one would say, um, out of, out of Russia and very tied to, to Putin and, you know, an all around bad guy. Um, and Yuri Milner is influential. And as we know, Russian politics and business intermingle a lot. And certainly if Putin wanted something done, like he wanted access to code or data or anything like that, he might have been able to get his hands on it in a deal like that. And, um, and maybe a naive uh, Mark Zuckerberg would have handed it over. How serious is the problem of Russia's um, attachment to Facebook? Well, I mean, I can speak to, you know, that investment was well known when it occurred. I recalled, you know, talking with people about it as it was happening, you know, it was like 2010, 2011 timeframe. So mm. at the time, I remember, you know, the, the climate being very much that like, you know, Russia was, you know, it had its issues, but nobody really suspected that, you know, in the investment world that it was going to turn into this like deeply, you know, malicious actor. And so I think that uh, certainly within the Silicon Valley tech community milieu, which I've spent a lot of time in, uh, you know, the overwhelming feeling would have been uh, with somebody like Zuckerberg, like, oh, it's money. All right. That sounds good. You know, yeah. great. Sign me up. You know, uh, you know, to some extent that I think is fair because that was kind of the climate at the time. But I think also that, you know, taking that money, you know, may well have exposed him to various kinds of compromise or other kinds of influence that would have in turn affected the turn of events. I also think it's important not to limit ourselves to the discussion just of Facebook, although I know that's the focus of tonight's mm -hmm. program, and, uh, and also not Russia. I think that, you know, there's a lot of weird money floating around out in these tech companies, including from UAE and Saudi Arabia and, and China and, you know, God knows where. I mean, there's every crazy thing you can possibly imagine is going on in terms of influence within these companies. And, and we have to do a much better job of tracking that, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth relating that point to also the, you know, unequal treatment by Facebook of countries around the world. You know, it seems like there seem to have been special deals <laughs> and and a lack of, yeah. you know, um, attention on some parts of the world. You know, the most, most, shocking harms have been you know happening and the fact that we are spending like most of this show as well talking about like the us and its american news program but i think the problem is that we are not seeing the global nature of this company mm -hmm. you know it is ruining lives around the world it is a weapon of war and you know how do we gain access to this like researchers around the world have been saying you know can we get access to the data well i think it'll be a while before we actually are able to to do that but i think that also doesn't go far enough we need to be requiring some kind of foia access so you know these kinds of you know revelations are not so dependent on attacks of conscience and bravery of whistleblowers. It's not good enough that one person has to take these huge risks. Um, we need reliable access to information and documents from within the company that, you know, so we can ask the questions about, you know, these kinds of investments. And I'm sorry, but like, when you are as big as Facebook, you need to allow that access. Right. I mean, it was kind of stunning that Google allows researchers access, but, um, you know, Facebook does not. 
to the similar kinds of data sets. One of the things that was mentioned by the whistleblower the other day. Uh, Heidi, what's going on in the uh, yes. chat rooms or, 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 or so much? There's two things that I that I think are kind of burning up in the chat right now. One of them is really to your point, Emma. Uh, one of our viewers this morning sent me a link about digital colonialism and what happened when the outage occurred. And all of these countries that communicate among each other with WhatsApp was just, you know, devastated. That is a scary amount of power. And I think we do need to start viewing it in a much bigger zoom out way. And I think digital colonialism is the phrase that we should be working with. So that's the first thing um, yeah. that folks would like you guys to address. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I want to just note that, like, this has been, you know, decades where, where we have seen technology as only a beneficial thing. And working with private companies was seen as a way to bring new technologies that were denied to uh, parts of the world that were, you know, developing and so on, um, to bring access to the internet to people. And yet we were not really thinking about like privacy and, you know, harms and, you know, like a lot of uh, NGOs, well-meaning NGOs will have helping with these kinds of efforts. And it's built an infrastructure that's important to people that enables aid work. And, you know, but also um, we need to be more aware of how that's weaponized. And the fact that, you know, not everywhere has, you know, the kinds of democratic systems and um, any kind of <laughs> rules of law that are uh, ensuring accountable government and, and so on. And in the Cambridge Analytica case, the harms were greatest in other parts of the world. And I wanted to make sure I said that because, you know, I mapped Cambridge Analytica's um, efforts ar around the world on my website, propagandamachine.tech. And, you know, this was something that I wanted to get across to people is just the inequality of it. The fact that these people were working around the world and their, you know, most unethical campaigns were places that we, you know, barely think about. And those people matter too. Right. Because especially in, it was a Kenya that I think is the most well-known example of all of those where Cambridge Analytica really uh, intervened in the election there in a and the way. Caribbean is another yeah. well-known one. Turn it on Tobago, yeah. It's so um, scary. Listen, I mean, just all, all the names you guys are just rattling off at the top of your heads. I had a mm. really brief conversation with a previous Facebook whistleblower. I'm not going to say her name because I could sense that she still has been traumatized by the experience. But she exposed the fact that 25 countries had their elections tampered with. Mm -hmm. And that is a scary statement and a scary amount of power. And uh, I'm really glad that you guys address the global scale of it because, you know, it's, it's a monster. I just well, the, the media slide, freedom the side of this is right. really important. You know, we need to be remembering that there are journalists that under attack around the world, you know, and the pandemic as well has heightened this, has, you know, made people more dependent on digital technologies and governments, you know, like unethical governments are, you know, exploiting this. Um, the worry as well is that, you know, you have, you know, the new technologies that have been developed being weaponized against people 
uh, all the way around the world. And, you know, anything is used as an excuse in order to, you know, siphon people's data and target them with campaigns that are really unethical. Um, we're seeing these, you know, awful infodemic of um, COVID-19 as well, propaganda being distributed worldwide. You know, they're not doing anything about it. They're just, you know, people are dying. Millions are dying. Yeah, they don't seem to care. I mean, it's it's almost the reverse. Like they they really want to encourage it. It doesn't. There's no other way to to describe it. Um, you know, there's an interesting fact that came out of the testimony yesterday, and I can't remember the exact number, but it seemed to to me it was something that ninety percent of the amount of money being spent on fake news or on pushing fake news was happening in the English speaking world. So even though the, the impacts are certainly felt around the world, the real battle for people's minds is happening in the English speaking world and and mostly in the United States, which I thought was an interesting. Um, message to be sending out about how America has become the battlefield, you know, is going to impact the whole of the world, but it's, it's really an American battlefield right now. Or an English speaking I would question that data. I would question that data. Uh, that's information around the world. Um, I would say that there's a lot of lobbying going on here and the mm. political debate around Facebook and so on is probably heightened here. But, you know, disinformation affects, you know, a lot of languages and we lack data. It's part mm. of the problem is research doesn't happen right, in those right. places. And, and I might say that you might be right that that's where most of the money is being spent, yes, but that I'm not sure that that's directly proportional to where most of the damage is occurring. I think that um, you know, That's with point. situations like WhatsApp, where you've got these encrypted messages going around and spreading rumors yeah. in, in, you know, low income communities around the world, that can be incredibly damaging and it doesn't really cost anything. Right. That's the thing. I mean, I think yeah. prices to advertise on Facebook in the third world country are far less than obviously than well than and, the and again you know whatsapp if you start yeah. injecting bad stuff into the whatsapp bloodstream and that mm. circulates and creates rumors and you know groups and all of these kinds of things that that can be very very damaging to a society indeed um you know it's interesting a few years ago when uh, zuckerberg decided to encrypt uh, all the messaging services people you know some people thought well, that's great he's protecting privacy but really it was also protecting disinformation, because it's really hard to now figure out how that disinformation flows in, in places like WhatsApp, because we have such little access to what people well, are Almost out. no way to study yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Sandberg, eh, because she has a very unique public image of being this very uh, go-getting, uh, women-positive, very, uh, you know, in some regards, very popular uh, business leader, and that she stands out from the rest. However, you know, the new iteration of her image appears to be somewhat different. It seems to be that she's a, if anything, much more focused on money than Zuckerberg ever really was. That he, you know, when he, she took over, it was that, that's when the drive to profitability really started. Um, that she's been approving personally of a lot of these efforts around the world, whether it's Myanmar or elsewhere, to allow some of this disinformation to continue. That she's very focused on the cover up and very focused on the PR and not very focused on fixing the situation internally. And in fact, she's, you know, she's anything but her sort of, you know, I mean, she's leaning in, but she's not leaning in in the way uh, she's, she suggested people should be leaning in. She's leaning in, in a very negative way uh, on this issue. Um, do you have any thoughts about her, either of you? Well, I, I can at least speak to the idea that she was very uh, much part of the Harvard milieu with mm -hmm. uh, Larry Summers, uh, you know. And, she's so uh, interesting. Isn't that Larry Summers thing interesting? I just can't get over, over that. But she well, she, I mean, she worked for him for like 10 years. This is the same guy yeah. who adjudicated the Winklevoss uh, Zuckerberg thing when he was the Harvard yeah. president. 
I mean, he's, well, he's not just a little that, connected. He's a lot connected. Before that, you know, he oversaw a lot of this, the people that were connected with privatizing Russia. Mm -hmm. And there's a really great essay that everybody should read called How Harvard Lost Russia that mm -hmm. talks about basically the privatization process that was patterned after what happened in Poland. And uh, basically, you know, what happened was they sent in all these Harvard whiz kids to, you know, and by whiz kids, I mean, you know, 30-some-year-old professor types uh, to, uh, you know, very rapidly privatize uh, Russia. And they realized that they could make a ton of money doing that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so many of them engaged what we would probably consider to be insider trading among those people was Tom Steyer. Uh, who people don't want to talk about necessarily, but, uh, you know, there is this whole network of people that profited massively from this. And, uh, you know, Larry Summers kind of found out about some of this activity and, and even encouraged a lot of it and kind of said, well, you know, as long as you didn't get caught, then it's great. But also, if you did get caught, then, you know, just push past it and you'll be fine. And, uh, you know, he has set the tone for Sandberg, for, you know, the Winklevi, for uh, Zuckerberg, that, you know, there really aren't necessarily any consequences to bad actions or unethical actions mm. if you have enough power to push past it. Yeah. And I think that Zuck has learned a great deal from both Sandberg and Summers, and I think it's unethical, and I think that we, we shouldn't be surprised that they've behaved in this way because they set the pattern for this in the 90s. And, and just so everyone is aware, and I know you've got to go, go Emma, but the Sandberg was um, Lawrence Summers' favorite student at at Harvard when she was there, but also she followed him through his career all the way to the to the executive, um, you know, all the way until he was the the Treasury Secretary. So it's not just a short you know period of time where she no. was influenced by him. She was aware of everything that was going on uh, during that whole period of time, even though she just spent some time in in Google. And her family has a pedigree of coming from um, from Eastern Europe at least, but also very very much active in the immigration of. The Refuseniks back in the 80s and, and, and that whole era, which is um, controversial in many ways of many of the people that came over. But, you know, at the time, obviously, it felt like the right thing to do. But again, it ties her whole family in with this history that Summers has of exploiting Russia and, and bringing the, the Refuseniks over. So, you know, I think there's a lot more we still need to understand about Sandberg and what she's done. It's not only Mark Zuckerberg that might be, you know, someone we examine as closely as we have. Um, I, I think as, as well, if I may say that we, um, and especially actually in America, there's a tendency to think women um, somehow are going to be better. <laughs> you all men. work together and collaborate and help each other. Isn't that the case? There's this like idealism <laughs> and like r ridiculous kind of stereotype that somehow, you know, putting a woman in charge will make everything better and they don't, you know, do anything that's corrupt or dishonest. <laughs> and um, I want to, you know, like just say that I think we see that women in leadership as, you know, uh, success role models, you know, like, and this is the way that she has been, you know, presented in liberal circles for a very long time. And, you know, I, I think her, her usefulness in those circles has also been very powerful. And, you know, we actually need to start, you know, kind of complicating these notions a little bit, yeah. because I think it allows companies like Facebook to put somebody out there like that, who, you know, adds a, a positive face to an organization, which let's face it, has weaponized its platform against teenage girls. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Good point. And she doesn't seem to be reacting at all to that part of it uh, this week. In fact, none of the yeah. leadership, the real leadership is reacting this week. Dr. Bryant, I know you've got to go and I wanted to give you a chance to 
to say anything you wanted to about the website that you have and anything else you want to promote? Well, thank you. Um, uh, you know, I mean, we're in a difficult time and COVID-19 propaganda that is circulating the anti-vax uh, movement is so damaging, so dangerous. Um, and I wanted to just make a point that, you know, like we need to look at Facebook and how we can, you know, um, address their, the problems on the, on the platform. But actually, really, you know, it, this is a far bigger problem. We are seeing, you know, all of these companies, you know, doing similar kinds of things. It's really very concerning. And I just want to underscore that the change has to be systemic. We can't just do any, you know, final little tweaks. Um, I think we absolutely have to have a revolution in tech to make it a public interest infrastructure. And that extends to companies like Cambridge Analytica and the wider in influence industry, which is still unregulated. And this is something I've been calling for for years now. So I want to underscore that and just like, if anybody wants to have a look at my website, I'd be very grateful for, you know, your visits. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter, um, Emma L. Bryant. Um, and the website so, is? Uh, my website is um, emma-bryant.co.uk. Okay. Um, and thank you so much. This was a really great show, and I appreciate such great questions. And thank you for building in so much about the global impact of Facebook, uh, because I felt that was such an important point. Thank really, you. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, and uh, have a good night. And uh, Dave, we're going to steal you for another couple of minutes so we can just wrap up with you. But thank you so much, thank Dr. You. Emma Bryant, a professor so of disinformation. Thank you so much for being <laughs> here tonight. Okay, have a okay, good night. Bye. bye. I have a full confession to make. I yeah. actually follow Emma's dog. You, oh, Emma's got a dog. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Emma, Tozen, yeah, yeah. Emma has a dog. Maybe so I not only I not <laughs> I just adore her because she's amazing, but her dog's great too. On Twitter, um, yeah, twi <laughs> yeah. There's a <laughs> Twitter account for Emma's dog. How great is um, that? One thing I wanted to say, just because it's burning up again online, mm. is that people are talking about trauma. They're just talking about the trauma that we are going through as a country and the trauma that people are experiencing globally and the role that Facebook laissez-faire approach to anything goes has uh, been playing in that. And I wonder if, you know, that's something you guys want to address because that is something that um, there's a very, very vibrant chat about that on our Twitter feed. Mm -hmm. Well, I can speak to that a little bit. I mean, uh, one of the things that I've been uh, working on from a research perspective, and this is kind of a work in progress that I'm getting ready to start to think about publishing, and I've been sharing it with people like Emma and other, you know, researchers and practitioners, uh, is the idea that, you know, all of this interaction with these social networks has been kind of herding us into these kind of cultish spaces where, you know, people are taking on, you know, increasingly radical beliefs. They're, you know, not being necessarily exposed to people that, you know, think differently from them very much. And so it, it, it makes it possible to do what is in cult studies is called dispensing with existence of the other. Where you can basically say, I don't care what you think. I don't ever want to care what you think. I don't, I'm never going to listen to you. I never want to be around people like you, whatever. And so that kind of reactivity also creates a lot of opportunity for trauma because once you get into that kind of headspace, you know, you are rejecting relationships. You are losing people in your life. You are starting to become 
uh, more hardened against others. And, you know, you're also with something like Facebook where you open it up and you kind of never know what you're going to get. You know, it's like a, mm. a box of toxic chocolates. You know, you it might be something fun and interesting and lighthearted, or it might be something that really irritates you and that you ruminate over and you think about for a long time. And I think that people are becoming you know, kind of both, I guess, inured to uh, that kind of experience of, you know, kind of just being willing to put up with that in exchange for the good things. But they're also storing up this kind of like cumulative experience of having all these nasty, toxic things that they just have to deal with all the time. And it gets yeah. old, you know, mm -hmm. I think people just get to a point where they're just not willing to kind of go through that anymore. So, I think there is a lot of stored up trauma that comes with some of this interaction. And, you know, we do get some benefit out of it. That's kind of the thing that I frequently come back to is that it is useful, but it's kind of like a tool. You have to be able to use it in a way where it benefits you and it's not harming you. And figuring out how to do that is kind of a full-time job. And that's kind of what a lot of us are engaged yeah. with is like, okay, how do we benefit from these things, but not have it eat away at us and, and harm us? So it's, incredibly dark and, you know, unfortunate bargain to be in that position, but that's kind of where we find ourselves. You know, it occurs Thank to me you. that uh, the first uh, rule of, of trauma is to avoid the source of the trauma. Uh, and yet <laughs> yeah. it's pervasive in our society. It's pervasive on, on social media. It's pervasive on television because of the OAN and, and Fox and all and in our newspapers and in these uh, echo chambers that we all live in. And it does feel to me like society and as a government, we need to to actually legislate some of this away. I mean, you know, if we know that something is very harmful to our people and we know that it's coming into our country and harming our people, whether it's through cable systems or uh, social networks, whatever it might be, it's incumbent on our government to regulate that or at least stop it or try stop it. But, you know, we're not seeing that. And I, you know, no one loves the First Amendment any more than I do. It's, a, you know, it allows me to do this every night. But on the other hand, there are limits to what we should be allowing to enter into our ecosystem, into our zeitgeist. It just, it strikes me that disinformation about things like COVID, whoever's carrying that information shouldn't be allowed to do what they're doing. It's plainly killing people. And as a government and as a society, we owe it to our people to protect them against it. Yeah. Um, and that could be for trauma reasons or just, just general reasons of our own safety and well-being. Well, just practical, you know, how yeah. do we make a healthy society? And yeah. having a bunch of nonsense information floating around is not going to help us do that. So, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of different discussions around how to go about handling mm -hmm. that problem. And, you know, the most nuanced and intelligent ones that I've heard center around the idea that, you know, we don't need to suppress anybody's speech, but we also don't need to pay to amplify it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, to the extent that somebody has a unconventional, wrong, malicious point of view, they can pay to put those views onto the internet and nobody else has to be responsible for helping them amplify that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of the bottom line. So I think mm -hmm. that's kind of what these social platforms find themselves in the business of doing is not only do they help people publish views, they also serve a role in helping to amplify them. And I think declining to help amplify mm -hmm. is a reasonable place to draw the line. But there's a lot of discussion that we have to have about this. But I think that we're starting to have more nuanced intelligence discussions about this now in earnest, because it isn't just about you know, censorship and Section 230 and all of the kind of mechanics that we've been kind of, you know, talking about until now. Now we're talking about, okay, we, we actually have a sense of the harm that's being committed. We have some sense of how that's happening. 
And I would suggest, you know, this is the area that I'm working on a lot right now is this idea of social capital and the idea that disinformation harms our bonds between American citizens. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like trying to understand gravity, but without understanding how gravity really works, you kind of infer a lot of things around stuff moving around in the sky. Mm -hmm. But until you have a general theory of, you know, gravity and understand that it is caused by mass and the relationships between objects, you can't talk about that in an intelligent way. So the missing element that we aren't talking about is these bonds between people, the social capital links that tie us together and create Mm -hmm. social fabric. And so what I'm trying to do is introduce that into the bloodstream and the vocabulary of how we talk about what disinformation does, because otherwise you can't quantify or talk about what the harm actually is. All you know is that you, you know, you see stuff that seems bad and people feel bad, but you can't say what the harm actually is. So by being more clear about that, we can start to identify the things that are causing that harm specifically. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Great stuff. Thank you, Dave Troy, for being here tonight. Dave, do you want to promote anything? Is there anything I could just uh, leave our audience with about where they can find you and, uh, and your work? Yeah, so uh, probably the best place to interact with me is on uh, Twitter right now. I'm at Dave Troy and also at uh, davetroy.medium.com where I'm writing some things. At the moment, I'm kind of gestating a whole lot of different projects at, at the same time. So a little bit dark in terms of big publications or that sort of thing, but you'll be seeing more come out over the next few months. And your medium is really terrific. I really recommend it to oh, anyone. Yeah, I, I have a series there on the big history behind January 6th, which if you haven't had a chance to check that out, it does offer a, a pretty coherent f- framework for the history of how we got here. It does indeed. So that's a good uh, thing to check out. Uh, so thanks very much, Dave Troy, for being here tonight. And thank you, Heidi. That was a great show. Uh, thank you for putting it all together. We're back on Friday with the after show, uh, which is, gives us tomorrow off, which is quite nice. Not really off, but we're not in here. Uh, but we'll see you on uh, on Friday on the after show at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern. Anything else you want to share, Heidi, before we say goodnight? I'm just really grateful that everybody took the time to not only show up online, but to show up here. And you and Emma were just gangbusters. One thing before you leave that I think is another burning desire question, if I can. Are we ever going to own our data? Is that just a question we just leave dangling? Are we ever going to own it? Well, this is a, this is a topic that has been uh, brought up by uh, our good friend Brittany Kaiser, uh, who is quote unquote a whistleblower who left Cambridge Analytica, and she has been uh, working on an initiative to allow people to use like blockchain to quote unquote own their data and they can monetize it and whatever. Uh, my position on that, and I think the position of many uh, researchers, is that if that's the model that we want to use, then the issue there is going to be that there will be enough people that will sell their data and monetize it that they will end up selling out society. Mm. And so there isn't really a um, uh, you know solution there to be had. And yeah. uh, that's why Thank we you. can't abandon the idea of governance and, you know, allowing government to do the kind of regulatory things that we need government to do. That's why we organize in that way. And we have to go down that path and and let it do its work. Keeps coming back to good governance and good democracies create good governments. Hard, uh, hard work. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. hard work, but we got to keep <laughs> at it and uh, and keep up the fight. We certainly are not. It's not over yet by the, any shot. Uh, so thanks very much for being on Narrative tonight, and thank you for joining us at home. We'll see you again on Friday. Have a good night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.